Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Olga Hines, who is the founder and CEO of Unmanageable Artists, Mixed Mash Records, Syndicate the Agency, but you'll probably know her as Laidback Luke's manager. She's also clearly a female, and she's also representing the Netherlands for the first time on this podcast. So, Olga, um, welcome. Thank you, Phil. I'd like to add to that, I also represent the very little-known country of Suriname. Well, tell us some more. <laughs> Suriname is uh, one of the smaller countries in South America. Um, DJs such as uh, Chucky, Afrojack have strong affiliations with it. But from a music perspective, uh, I think a lot of the, um, uh, the Dutch house sound actually stems from Suriname. Uh, and that's where I grew up. Well, I've learned something about you already, and we already know each other. So there you go. It's always <laughs> worth taking time to have these chats, Olga. <laughs> Um, so when did you leave and when did you arrive in the Netherlands? I came, as um, as many kids do, uh, I came to the Netherlands to go to college. So that would have been when I was about 19 um, and uh, started on an economics course, um, uh, a college, basically, yeah. So, so your parents, well, are they in the Netherlands? Are they back home in South America? How, how well, does... now pretty much the whole family has, uh, has moved back to the Netherlands. Uh, my father passed away over a decade ago. Um, but yeah, the economic state in, in Suriname isn't such that it's very easy to make a living. Um, so as all the kids kind of moved back here to go to school, my mom eventually also uh, came over to be with the kids. And yeah, a lot of us, all of us uh, essentially stayed, even though some of them ventured back out. I have one sister living in Curaçao and one living in Mexico. Okay, so you were a Dutch uh, family anyway, right? And you went there and kind of came back. Is that how it works? My dad was Surinamese, so I'm half Dutch, half Surinamese. Right, got you. Uh, Okay. So I have lots of family still there. Okay. Yeah. So the next question is then, and I think you've kind of partly answered it because I, 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 in my view, people who have got, and I don't mean this to, there's no value att- judgment attached to this, but people who've got an unusual background t- tend to end up in unusual careers. It's almost like they've been let off the leash at an early age and everything's kind of there for the taking. Um, but how did you get into this? Um, did you expect to be doing this? Was it, was it always the plan? Oh, or? gosh, no. I mean, I, I think definitely growing up in Suriname gave me a very different perspective to kids, uh, you know, my age who just grew up in the Netherlands. Um, Suriname is a society that has very little um, services from, uh, from the government. So, you know, there's, there's no doll. There's no, there was very little health care at the time. Uh, not many schools, which is why uh, a lot of kids move away to go to college. So it, it means you had to hustle for everything. And especially at the time when I grew up, everything was scarce. Even kind of basic necessities were very scarce. I'm talking milk, potatoes, rice, medicine, uh, school books, anything. So coming here in, in the land of plan, plenty, um, 
I saw opportunity everywhere. Um, mm. And I, I, that, I, that definitely set me apart, I think, from, from other kids um, who were accustomed to being taken care of, being accustomed to uh, things already being in place. Whereas I, I grew up knowing that if I didn't take care of myself, nobody else would. Um, so yeah, that definitely already gave me a very different view. Uh, yeah. Again, growing up in Suriname also, dance music was not on my radar at all. Uh, our influences were much more American. So Latin music, uh, hip hop, jazz, um, were much more the influences that uh, that were prevalent there. Um, so it was only going to college here that, as students do, I started going out in nightlife. And um, there I came across uh, this guy who I could best describe, best compare as the Dutch Pete Tong at the time. He, he His name is Wessel van Diepen. People in Holland definitely will know who I'm talking about. He was the face and the voice of Radio 538 at the time, uh, did the most important dance show called Van Diepen's Dance Department. And he had actually thought up a couple of um, dance projects that later on turned out to be pretty successful. Uh, one of the most well-known ones was um, uh, the Benga Boys. Uh, but he'd done a couple of other projects. He had a little taste uh, and he wanted to start up a company. And he knew that I was going out in nightlife quite a bit. I, I knew all the, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 how you describe them, not just the DJs, but you know how you have those kind of nighttime people of the night, the paradise birds, we used to call them. And I was kind of part of, of that clique, the club kids. And yeah. uh, he asked me, you know, would you want to come in and, and, and do this with me? And I was like, yeah, well, sure, but I don't know anything about it. <laughs> uh, you know, there was no media and entertainment courses at the time, um, no um, business, music business schools and et cetera. Being in, in dance music wasn't a business at all. So that was a great opportunity at a time where, you know, nobody really knew what the business was. Uh, and that's kind of how I rolled into it. So you're background up until i mean you've been doing you've been literally doing the kind of what you've been doing now for 17 years right with the same companies and you know it's a, it's kind of a continuous a bit like a, you know i've been doing this for 10 years now before that i ran a nightclub and promoted for, for for 12 years you know these are you've ended up being quite stable in what you're doing but before that you kind of moved around didn't you 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 worked at columbia and zomba and i, I believe mushroom records in australia is that correct yeah that's that's correct so you went to australia yeah so uh, when when wessel asked me to start up the company it was going to be a joint venture with a company called zomba records okay and um that took a couple months for them to try and work out the deal and after a while, um, they couldn't work it out, basically. So the whole deal kind of imploded. That meant that I had been sitting there kind of being trained and, and looking kind of behind the scenes of how a label was being run. Wessel was kind of paying me on the side, and that kind of stopped. So the, the label then said, well, great. You pretty much have had an internship now. Don't you want to stay on? They had somebody leave for pregnancy leave a couple of months later. And I was like, okay, cool, that sounds good. I'll, I'll just go to Bali for a couple of months and surf, and then I'll come back. But then when I was in Bali, I kind of enjoyed that vibe so much. I was like, hey, wouldn't it be great if I could combine working in music, but then kind of continue this, you know, beach lifestyle? So in my mind, the best way to do that was to go to Australia. So 
uh, I came back, did the maternity leave uh, for a couple of months uh, uh, until that was done, saved a little bit of money and went to Australia on this working holiday visa they had at the time. I don't know if they still have them, but it meant that up until a certain age, you could just go down. You didn't need to require like a special work visa and you were allowed to, to work. And I came in there thinking like, I'm going to have to hustle at least for a year and then maybe hopefully I'll land a job. But lo and behold, three weeks after I arrived into the country, I was sitting at a company called Mushroom Records, who actually represented the whole catalog of Zomba that I just came from. Hmm. And funnily enough, in the midst of the job interview, I realized um, that I probably misexplained that I hadn't actually been a product manager, which is a marketing job but that I was a production manager, which just means like you physically take the master and bring it to the factory and make sure the right master, it goes into production and you do, you know, the amount of orders and et cetera. It's a very kind of more, you know, hands-on technical yeah. job. Um, and I guess we got our wires crossed, but I kind of just went with it <laughs> and bluffed my way through, knowing that they ended up hiring me, thinking that I that I had been a, a product manager. And that's how I kind of got that job. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I hung out there for about a year, realized that actually uh, the center of the music industry there, which was more Melbourne and not Sydney, only has like a very shitty flea beach. And Australia, you know, no disrespect, but it feels just like an island. It just felt too remote from everything that was happening in music, which mm. was very London and New York centric at the time. So I felt I was compromising too much to be out somewhere half sunny, half middle of music industry. So I ended up just going back uh, to the Netherlands. Uh, and then kind of rolled from one job to the other, which was great because it just gave me this basis of all these different experiences. I, um, I'd done some uh, flyer, flyering work. I ended up working for a publisher. And then I ended up being hired for Sony Music. Uh, and that's what I did for a little while. Um, and from there, rolled into doing some consultancy work for other artist management, for social dev and so on. And I guess from there, because I was still looking for a job, you know, I was doing what everybody was doing who was looking for a job. I was being a consultant, <laughs> which means you're out of a job usually. <laughs> um, didn't intend to start up my own company at all. Very, very far away from that. I didn't aspire that at all it just felt like a really big headache but i couldn't land a job anywhere um and i guess after a year of doing consultancy work i felt like well maybe i should just start doing my taxes um and it kind of just grew into a company without That's intention a, at all you, you you paint the picture in a wonderful way because basically you did the, the course that you couldn't do at the time because it didn't exist in the music industry by just kind of bluffing your way around geographically and um, professionally. <laughs> the whole thing grew organically by just having to do the paperwork and it started from there. And I, I totally see it. I mean, that was how it was, wasn't it? I know DJs who were stopped at the airport by tax officials because they hadn't declared any earnings for five years. And it's not because they wanted to. It's not because they had any, you know, malicious intent. They just, it, it wasn't done. It wasn't, yeah. The whole thing wasn't organized enough for anyone to have any idea what they were doing and it was just all kind of that's how it was so 
at the time it was growing up as an industry, it kind of sounds like you were kind of growing up personally. A hundred percent. And that's, yeah. and that's, you know, it's something that can't be done anymore in that way. You know, I yeah. think if you want to get into management or, you know, any side of the industry, actually, if it's on the label side or publishing side or a promoter side, there's so much more required now from the get. Whereas at the time, you know, there, there was no template, nobody done it before. It also meant you could make mistakes because, mm. you know, there was no right way of doing it. And making mistakes was actually part of discovering the business and building the business. Um, yeah. And yeah, it gave me a great schooling to dip into everything. And also because I had a very different perspective, I didn't, you know, allow to, 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 tell, to have anybody tell me that this was the way we were doing things. It also allowed me to question everything. Mm. And do different types of deals and build my own businesses because I saw things happen in a way where I was questioning that that was the best way for for me or for my artist. And if, at the time, if I thought I could do it better, well, hey, let's just do it. So it's a kind of systems approach, isn't it? It's saying, you know, I'm not going to be this or that. And this doesn't have to be done like that. And that doesn't have to be done like that. It's a, it's, it's a whole. And if you change one bit of the whole it might have effects elsewhere. And so you've got to kind of keep your eye on everything. And again, that's how it was, wasn't it? Because no one, it was a very small thing at that time. Um, and yeah, no one absolutely. Knew, and we, you, had, you had to do everything. Yeah, yeah, and we embraced being rebellious. I mean, we weren't being supported by anything mainstream. Mainstream press, not by politics, not by, you know, subsidies, you know, whatever the powers that be were, you know, we were on the, on, on the outside of it. So therefore, I also felt, I felt very proud by saying, you know, I don't want to subsidize. Subsidize for people who can't actually make enough money. You know, art should be, you know, able to sustain itself. That makes it also makes it art. Now, meanwhile, I feel a little differently. But at the time, that was part of what we did, where we felt we had to look after each other. We had to stand on our own legs. And we were just making things happen in a different way. Because, you know, the, the, the usual roads were just not available to us. Radio wouldn't play us. Press wouldn't cover us. Regular venues wouldn't allow us. You know, all, the, all that stuff. So you had to then break ground somewhere else. So you've since then had an extremely successful career. And as I say, a lot of people know you as laid back Luke's manager. But just talk us through... Your, would you say that management is your biggest string to your bow or is it, um, you know, the, the label or is it the agency? What would you say well, if you had to describe yourself as Management is definitely my biggest passion. Um, you know, I think the other things that I do were always part of making things happen for my artists. Like I said, because I don't, I didn't think the services we were being, were there or there were opportunities that weren't uh, being used. But at the end of the day, that's always where I felt I could really excel and where I could be at my most creative because I'm not a creative as, as an artist. I, I can't play an instrument. I can't write. I can't sing. But my creativity is definitely on the business side in looking at, an, at, at a wish, at an ambition of an artist that might be completely, you know, might seem completely unfeasible. And to then find a way to do it, to make it financially viable, to make it lucrative, 
and to bring an idea to fruition as something that becomes very tangible, that you can hold on to, that you can watch, that you can document. Um, so that kind of creativity is something that I find in management. And that's something that I always find myself going back to as the very core of what I do and who I am. Um, so if you get a new artist and this artist is has, has musical talent, has the bit that you, you just said, you know, this is definitely not what I get involved in. I expect the artist to bring to bring that side of things. Do you feel like it's your job to see the trajectory as to where the artist could be? Because what I'm asking is, do you kind of like end up generally, would you say, it might be both, with artists who kind of really know where they want to go or, or really you spot the talent and you kind of show them where they could go and help them get there? How does that dynamic work? So my, I, I think there's, for me personally, I really like to work with artists who are extremely driven and have big goals, big personal goals, big unique goals, preferably. People who have ideas that you know haven't been done before that other people haven't thought of yet that's what what i thrive off um i can add to that creative vision i can also um you know lead it down a certain path or i can uh, you know out of if, if an artist has maybe 10 different goals i can prioritize the goals or make stepping stones between them um, what I don't do, I'm not that kind of manager who looks at an artist like a blank canvas and goes, I'll, I'll make you a star. That is just not the kind of manager that I am. I like to add to a very, very strong creative vision and then say, like, let's say, oh, you know, an artist is really in love with the color red. Then I can show you a whole range of red. I can, uh, you know, link you to all these other types of artists in maybe different creative fields who also have a link with that red, uh, making even more beautiful reds than, than the one you were thinking of. But I need something like a creative seed that keeps us talking, and that is always the basis of a collaboration. I now, hear you. Now, the other I thing that's really, really important, I think, and that goes for any type of management artist relationship, is that you have a good understanding and a, preferably a somewhat similar understanding of where the artist is at in their career. If an artist comes to me and they feel they're already on the top of the world, uh, then there, there's very little, you know, that like they feel they're already like a number one artist, whereas I feel maybe they're 20, then we're not going to be a great match because whatever I do, if I bring you up to 15 and I'm talking in, you know, in general, obviously, then yes, you're yeah. not going to be very happy. The artist is not going to be very happy because they feel they should already be at one. And the reverse is also true. So there has to be a somewhat similar understanding of where you are so that at least you can agree on what, what it means to make progress and what it means, you know, where are we heading? What actually signifies success? Because success is not the same for one artist to the other. You know, one artist just aspires to be just number one, just just to be famous. Uh, certain artists just want to be rich and certain artists really just want to be able to be as creative as possible and just pay their bills. So success mm. can mean very different things. It's really important for, you know, for both to have a similar understanding of where we're trying to go. Olga, your, your approach has obviously worked because you've done some pretty high profile things with some pretty high profile people in the last kind of decade and a half um 
can you just paint a picture of some of the artists you've worked with, some of the things that you're most proud of, just to give people a sense of your journey, kind of since the companies that you started, and particularly since your, your management career uh, took off? I think the thing that I'm most proud of is it's not like an individual event or occasion. It's just that what I'm known for, I think, is, is to build longevity and build careers. I'm not so interested to just have all these notches on my belt going, you know, Grammy, number one, et cetera, et cetera. I think at the end of the day, what's really important to me is the kind of success where you can have all those three things that we just mentioned to have, you know, the freedom and the success to continue to, to be able to be as, as creatively free as you would like while still being able financially to look after yourself and your loved ones. And I think that's what we've been able to create a couple of times now. Um, And that takes usually immense amounts of work and energy uh, for that to be stable and for that to be able to continue through changes, through times, through generations of people coming in and out of this scene. So that is something that I feel... That's my that's my sweet spot, so to speak, and that's what I'm most proud of. And of course, it's not only achieving that for your artists, but it's achieving it for yourself. You spoke about you know artists having this longevity, having this stability, having the, the kind of family life away from the scene, if you like, or away from from the day job or the night job, as it as it may be. Uh, and presumably, you've had to find a balance yourself in that area as well, because you started off as this kind of surf kid who was dabbling in music on the side and moving around the the, the, the world. I'm going to guess that you're, you're a lot more settled now with family concerns. Uh, and you've managed to do it for 17 years. And I'm, I'm going to guess, but I'm going to ask you, have you achieved a balance? Have you got the kind of work life balance and got your own ducks in a row while you're spending all your time getting everyone else's in a row, if you like? I mean, I think... You know, as you go along, and I think, you know, we're talking about this more and more about a healthy uh, life and, and work balance. And I think as you're getting to know more about it, you realize you're not doing as good a job at it as you could. And you constantly have to check yourself about, you know, is this really, you know, being in the moment? You know, if if today everything would end, would you look back and have no regrets about the time that you have spent? And I, I think I can do a much better job than I'm doing still. Um, but I think that's also part of, of the process. You know, I think also part of my role, and I, I don't mean that in a demeaning way whatsoever, but all the team that works with me here on the floor, all the artists that I look after, in a sense, I feel a similar responsibility to them. Uh, as they were my children and in that sense you know as a parent you always sacrifice yourself for your kids so in you know that's something they haven't quite figured out yet Um, I remember I mean it's quite well known that uh, I, uh, I worked with Roger Sanchez for a long time we had a very very acrimonious separation that I regret to this day certainly wasn't my choice um, one of the things that came out of that as a result is that the label that I basically built for him, Stealth Records, uh, when we separated, it really just kind of imploded. And a lot of people came up to me and said, um, oh, you know, kind of that proves you right. You must be happy. But that label, I, I built that with my blood, sweat and tears. Uh, you know, just the fact that 
you know, he, he now controlled it. And, you know, I don't want it to die. You know, I don't want it to die. I don't, you know, dislike anybody that much that I want something that I feel like is part of my own. I, I want it to be killed off that way. So that's always the thing, even when, when we separate or when, the, you know, one of, the, one of the team leaves the flock, I still feel they're part of, you know, what we've built together. And I always want everybody to be well, probably above and beyond um, my own well-being. Um, but I have a kid now. So that really confronts that my health and my well-being directly affects him too. I have a bigger responsibility even than towards myself, but to him. Uh, so it's a challenge. I'm definitely not at a point where I'm like, I feel like I've got it under control, um, but it's an ongoing process. So it's interesting you should talk about it that way, because one of the questions that I, I'd written down to talk to you about was, do you feel that your job involves and the word I wrote down was parenting artists, because I've read you talking about how you've helped artists with personal finance and finding homes and, you know, even clothing and photography and all that kind of stuff. Basically, everything apart from the, the talent they bring to the table, the, mu- the music and the vision. Uh, and I think you, you, you probably just answered it. But um, we were talking just before we came, uh, before we hit record about, you know, I was telling you about the, 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 the time, weekends and evenings, which I feel like I'd, I'd rather not not have to spend because I'm in the similar situation to you with a family and so on. Um, and um, yeah, um, you start a lot of artists young, right? So do you have a relationship therefore with their parents? And is there a conversation with them about what's best for their, their son or daughter or whoever the artist is? Um, and, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm talking to actually you're the first female on the on the on the podcast to date i believe and that's 12 episodes in so probably just about right uh, for the, for the music industry um but um you know is there is there a female side to it is there something you bring to the table um as a mum and as a as a as a woman that you know wanting the stuff that you work on to survive beyond any relationships and stuff i'm, I'm asking the question um, and i'm aware I'm, I'm a man asking that question yeah. but well, an element. we had a we had a very interesting panel at um uh, the winter music conference just now uh which was pretty half and half uh, a, a selection of some pretty seasoned artist managers and i i think it's part of growth where we all agreed with each other that our relationships with our artists are more at arm's length. I think there's a tendency at the beginning to feel that you need to have such a personal friendship relationship with the artist that you look after. But the fact mm. of the matter is you're not doing them any favors. You're not doing yourself any favors to approach it on that level. Because a lot of times you'll have to be the bearer of certain news that's best brought when it's you know at a little bit with, with a little bit more distance, mm. um, it also you know artists will have to have their own private life too. You know they have to be able to make their own mistakes as they're growing up. If you know if you're mentioning about starting with artists uh, pretty young, um, I can't really afford to be that close and personal with the artist and their potential partners and so on because changes might happen then and they do. <laughs> And I don't want to be in that position where you're caught up in the middle of a divorce and et cetera. It always just has to be very clear that my interest is with the artist and 
at times that may be aligned with the partner in uh, in the relationship, but at times it may not. So, you know, I I get to deal more with what happens with the artist, be it uh, from a business perspective, from a creative perspective, from a private perspective. In return, that's not my role to them, that they would have to deal with whatever my drama is. They don't need to be aware of anything that I might have even here on the work floor. You know, that's a burden to them. I'm here to make sure that they can focus 100% on being an artist and 100% on being the best husband and the best daddy, yeah. mommy, and etc. And the reverse, that is not their role to me. So the reason I think the reason I asked the question is that we all know that people who get involved in this business as teenagers who've got a burning passion for it and they love the music and they love the scene and uh, they tend to not be the most stable people at times or the most mature or the most grown up. And I, I think to I think to um, professional footballers, for instance, there's another great example. And I read I'm, I'm a big fan of football. So I read a lot of managers talking about their role, um, football managers. And they talk a lot about their, you know, their job is to kind of bring this person into the adult world as much as it is to um, to develop their career and and so on. And they, you know, it can be an unreal world, can't it? It can be a, a lot very quickly. Yeah. Um, and you talked a lot about mental health. Obviously, Avicii brought all this to the fore and about uh, how this can affect people. And I, I guess the reason for my question was. You know, the difficulties with knowing where to draw the line as a manager, and I think you just answered some of it, but um, there are particular issues, aren't there, around the age of people, how quickly it happens, and mental health. And Yeah, and it's difficult because, you know, you see a lot of situations where the faith of an of a artist manager is tied one-on-one to the faith of the artist. You know, you see this especially where there's one key artist for, for the manager, that means it becomes more of a challenge to say no when you have to say no or yes when you have to say yes. Because if that puts your whole, you know, your, your living, your whole income in the scales, you know, that's a, big, that's a big challenge. Because morally, you might have to say, you know, don't do this or you have to stop this or we're not going to go and tour. Um, but what if that then immediately jeopardizes your whole business and the responsibilities mm-hmm. that you've taken on? And, and to put that in perspective, a lot of times that is because the artist has demanded it so. You know, I've, I've seen many circumstances where the artist has demanded, I don't want you to take on, you know, any other prolific artist because I want you 100% dedicated to me. Well, the reverse to that is, you know, you're both tied to, to each other. And that becomes a very difficult challenge. I don't think there's a direct answer to it. I've always shied away from it, but I've shied away from it because I was in a position to do it. You know, I've been in conversations with artists where they said, you know, um, I'll do it, but, you know, I'll have to become an owner of your company or, you know, you have to pay me X, Y percentage from the other artists. You know, you, 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 I'm going to have to approve whoever... And I've always said, no, I have to remain completely independent because that's how I can do the best job for you. Um, And it it meant at times that I didn't get the business. But again, for me, it's about longevity. And I see time and time again how that kind of relationship becomes problematic down the line. Mm. Um, But those are challenges that we as, as professionals face 100%. And those are real pressures that I don't think 
you know, there's an immediate answer to once you are in that position, once you're faced with that challenge. No, as you say, it's something that maybe you end up looking back on in years to come and seeing the answers are there kind of in, with hindsight, but it's very difficult to know when it's happening. That said, Olga, I've visited your HQ. It's, it's new. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful building. You must be very proud of having this, this place that's kind of custom designed for the way you feel it should be. Um, you've got a lovely cafe there. You've got lovely shared workspaces. You say, um, you said to me before we hit record that you think it's very, very important to have face-to-face meetings and to be able to look into each other's eyes when you're agreeing things. You've got a wonderful boardroom with a, the fantastic table everyone could imagine in the middle. You must be very proud of it. Well, um, that was definitely the intent when we built uh, when we built the office. You know, we spend a lot of you know we, we make long days, long hours. Um, I want my team to have a place where they feel proud to be working here. And it's a little bit flexing our muscles too, you know, at a time when I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, how the business is changing. A lot of people yeah. are basically crawling back to a defensive position. I actually wanted to see, to show people, you know, we're here, we're here to stay. But to be honest, the actual rebuild of this place is probably one of the most challenging years ever in my life. Um, it's it's definitely something that tipped me over when you talk about you know mental challenges and so on. I was definitely caught uh, completely off guard by the magnitude of the project. Um, it was drawing me down financially uh, in a humongous, unexpected way. Also, in in I was so caught that I couldn't get out. I was in the middle of this build. It was just going over budget by hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Meanwhile, my team was cramped up, cooped up in this, you know, little office somewhere else. I was double dipping in, in rental fees. I mean, it was just a crazy time. And definitely, I, I, I thought I was going crazy. I thought I had like early onset dementia. I had fired somebody the previous day and I didn't know who I had fired. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm getting old. And I went to uh, to the doctors and, and I said, you know, give me an MRA or something. I'm sure you're going to see something that, you know, my brain's starting to malfunction. And she listened to like me talking for about 10 minutes. And she's like, there is absolutely, I'm not even going to look at, you know, give you an MRA or anything. Your, your, your brain is short circuiting. You, you need to sleep. You need to rest. I don't know how you're going to do it. But you need to just chill out. And that was my wake-up call. It, it sounds to me, Olga, like if there was ever going to be a film about you covering the development of your offices, of your of your HQ for that year would have been the one. I think everything else would have probably come oh out. This is what we were talking about before. because So that was my wake-up call. But I then cannot afford for anybody here. I can talk about it now because it's past me, right? We've lived through it. But at that time, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell any artists. I couldn't tell anybody here on the floor because everybody's looking at you to set the pace. If I was going to fall apart at that point, everything was going to fall apart. I would lose the business. I would lose artists. Everything would fall apart. So what it did help me do is to then, okay, I've identified the problem. I'm going to compartmentalize what I need to do and just do it. And rather than fight this, this was like the first time where I had to like really take a big loss because what I would have usually done is I would have gone to war over it. I wasn't like in the midst of war. Um, And I decided to just take my loss so I could get out of it. 
and focus on my business. So that cost me a humongous amount of money. But that was the decision that I had to take to be able to get out of it. Because otherwise, it would have been like years of litigation. Probably, you know, well, at the very least, an unsure outcome. And I had to kind of choose. Either I'm just going to quit because <laughs> I can't have it anymore. Or I'm just going to draw a line under this and focus back on the business. And that's what I did. It's kind of classic in a way isn't it um it's it's as i say it's the kind of thing when you see tv programs about big projects you know they they say that you can have fast quick or good but you can't have all three and it's always one of those things that goes wrong that nearly nearly kills the oh, hero and they, I, they kind I, of I, I wish out. one of them would have been good though <laughs> <laughs> but anyway look you've done it and i think it's really interesting that you said and by the way the place is, is absolutely fantastic thank you thank you you, uh, you know you you touched on it these things don't happen with a level business playing field, right? There's always, when you take on something of your choice, there's always something going on outside, which is a complicating factor. And of course, in the last 17 years, you've seen the rise and fall of the whole America embracing dance music and the EDM scene. And of course, you've had artists, and I'm thinking particularly of Luke at this point, who have kind of gone in, gone in um, headfirst into that, uh, arena done very very well and then kind of come out the other side but you've seen an awful lot of change in how DJs have perceived the amount of money that's arrived and then kind of gone out again from the whole industry and what lessons have you learned as a manager and what insights as to the the scene as a whole have you had you know through that period from say 2005 to, to now well I mean the good thing about Lucas you know he was relatively already a successful DJ even before I started with him um, Which was when? That was what, 2000? I started with him around 2000, 2001. Right. And he had then kind of just wrapped up being a pretty successful techno DJ. Not, yep. not many people know this, but he was a pretty successful techno DJ. And, and, and creatively, he felt he had come to the limits of what he was allowed to do there. Because if, as a techno DJ, he wanted to play some kind of cheesy or funny mashup, as he also really loves doing, oh, he'd be slaughtered. <laughs> Whereas yeah. on the housey side, he could actually play a deep techie track, and people just be like going into the flow. Because he, so he really made a very conscious decision to to make that switch to house music, but which meant at the time, because those were two vastly different scenes, he was basically starting from scratch. So he'd already done the kind of up and down at a time when obviously the numbers were very different. You know, success at the time meant something different than success meant about 10 years later. But being successful at that time meant he put it in, in perspective. He saw how the business blew up around him, which wasn't necessarily related directly to his personal success. Luke has yet to have like a number one worldwide hit. So he benefited from the whole business blowing up. Um, and so what I always recommend, which has worked really well for me, is at a time of, um, you know, you have, you have your seven fat years and you have your seven uh, scarce years. You know, I really build a buffer at the time of, of, of success. And so, for instance, this office, I build it in a way and finance it in a way that now that the business has uh, gone a lot smaller, we can afford to keep it going and we're not so much um, dependent on income coming in. 
So actually we can invest in our team, we can invest in structures and new projects as opposed to just spending money and keeping costs going. So I would always recommend don't take on too many obligations, loans, lease cars, and etc. Your home, you should own, for instance. If you can, you should own. A second house, you should never even mortgage unless you have some kind of, you know, plan in place where you're going to rent it out, uh, that kind of, but make sure that it's appropriate to that. Um, so it's, it's definitely being about being frugal and about being clever. Enjoy your life, enjoy your success, but make sure that you have something to fall back on. I always have this conversation with kids, and it's funny when you mentioned, you know, taking on these, these younger kids. And I remember doing this, um, I was moderating um, this panel um, at a dance fair, actually called Dance Fair, a couple of year, years back. And you had all these young kids, up and coming DJs at the time. And I asked them about their plans. And I said, So, how long are you planning to be DJing actively? And, and throughout the years, people always give the same answer. They always go, 10 years. Apparently, 10 years is what people can, can, can project for themselves. And I was like, okay, so 10 years. These were kids ranging in age from, let's say, 16 to 21. And I was like, okay, so, you know, 26 to, to, to 30, you guys are done. And we're like, oh, yeah, man, that's too old. We can't, we can't be, you know, be in a club after that. That's pathetic. I was like, pathetic? Really? I was like, Tiesto, Guetta, Frankie Knuckles, they're all pathetic. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we didn't mean that. And I was like, okay, well, because that's basically what you're saying. But that 10 years usually grows with them. If you ask them the same question five years later, they're still going to go 10 years. And I was like, but you've said 10 years. So you really have to plan for yourself what you're going to be doing to make money after those 10 years. Will you have something in place that won't require you to still be on the road? Will your label be making money? Will your records, will your writing be making money without you? you actively requiring to be on the road um and i you know i see more and more artists and artist managers having a good think about it but it's something where i think us as professionals have to do a much better job uh, in providing for that not just for today not just for tomorrow but for what's going to happen in 10 years from now so again, it's back to taking the long-term view, which is what you said all along. Yep. But my question is basically um, the, the, the special circumstances around that massive explosion, which, of course, I think is probably a one-off event. I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. Um, when kind of everything changed, it was a bit like buying a Bitcoin for $10 <laughs> and it's suddenly worth 20000 You know, no one expected it. And as you, you touched on it, you said, you know, Luke was wise enough to realise he was riding a wave that was bigger than him. But my question is, you know, how, as a manager, how have you processed that? How have you, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How have you navigated that? And now, in 2019, as we're recording this, of course, any artists coming through now are kind of post-EDM, right? So there's a whole new set of circumstances. I'm just looking for insights on um, on that whole curve, on yeah, that whole... Well, curve. first of all, I mean... Unfortunately, I'm, not every artist allows me to, to interfere or be a part of what is essentially their private finances. You mm-hmm. know? Really, my, my job kind of ends, if you want to be very black and white about it, 
once I've generated the money, then how oh, do you yeah. spend it? You know, I'd like to help them, uh, but it's not something that's agreed up front. And it's one of those things, as with everything, where I can offer them advice, put them, you know, in touch with, uh, with specialists and etc. But if they feel they've, you know, got their own way of doing things, especially because you then touch upon, you know, their private life, if they are with a partner, where they're choosing to live, the kind of house they're choosing to buy, etc., etc. Unfortunately, I am not always, uh, you know, allowed uh, to be part of that. And then sometimes it means that you are later down the line confronted with decisions that were made um, that are irreversible. Uh, and, and you'll have to basically start from scratch. That's happened before. Mm. So as a business, as someone who's now working in, in this kind of, the kind of, that's, yeah, the current age of dance music where, you know, it's been a, globally, I guess it's been a hip hop year or two, right? And dance music's kind of bubbled down to a level where it's never going away, but it's just one of the choices out there for, for music lovers and for, for club goers and so on. Um, how is it? How is the scene now? How is the, the, the lay of the land for your artists? Is it, would you say it's healthy? Is it other opportunities? Is it, um, how, how, do you, how do you see it now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's more integrated now. And I think that's going to continue to happen when you talk about commercial and crossover and talk about bigger opportunities. Um, look, dance music has always been part of, of the charts and the biggest success. Um, Madonna can call herself a pop artist all she's want, what she wants, but she's made dance music for as long mm. as I can remember. Um, for a minute, it was super uh, hip, both for, for DJs to get like a big pop artist and for a big pop artist to work with a DJ and etc. And that kind of flavor of the month opportunity, that has gone away. But, uh, and you know, that's kind of been replaced by hip hop music. But I think mm-hmm. there's a bigger opportunity now for those artists who have, have opened uh, their viewpoint and the same for artists from, from the other side of the aisles, be it from uh, rock, be it from uh, country, be it from pop music, to just work together and make great music. Mm. And I, I think those genres are going to you know, keep blending together. Um, so and, and that's also what I look for in an artist. Is, you know, I think one of the key things in, in when we talk about the EDM bubble is all these young kids that came through that basically did one thing. And when dance music changed, as it always has and as it should to remain healthy, it was almost like it was like a, a shock wave that went through the whole industry. And some of them were like, no, 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 it's not going away, you know. Big room will never die and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, but it's not about dying. It's about, you know, reinventing. It's about, that's what dance music was always about, sampling each other, evolving, new perspectives, new sounds coming true. And yes, if there's only one thing that you can do and you as an artist cannot evolve, you will fade away. And the only thing that I think is changing now, and I'm saying only, but I think it's a major difference, is that dance music used to evolve within a spectrum of what we still call dance music. But I think there's just such a big opportunity now to evolve into other genres, new genres, you know, Latin music. You know, I think electronic music has become something different and not just something that's only for the clubs. Um, so It's true, 
it's true because you 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 said earlier that you know you 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 refuse to approach any area of this business in a this is how it has to be done kind of way and it, oh, this is playing to your strengths i would say because you know everyone thought country music and electronic music could never mix and of course there was a prediction that's gone out the window in, in recent years exactly um do you think it's to do with the spotify generation do you think it's to do with hitting hitting you know shuffle on playlists on spotify that nowadays there isn't the tribalism that there used uh, to be i mean yes and no because i think actually in a sense back in the day people would be more open right people would be more open to the experience as such you would go to a club to be part of the community, whatever the community was bringing that week. I mean, clubs were legendary in creating, you know, this, this experience of whatever it was. I mean, I remember going to the Roxy where they had this kind of a Russian event and, you know, you needed to go through this endless cycle of, uh, of little cabins where you would get uh, this card stamped after an interview and needed to go to another stamp, and et cetera, et cetera. And the whole decor was amazing. They had uh, an Olympic edition with this guy just running a marathon on a treadmill. And I mean, even, if I'm, if, even when I'm explaining it right now, people who've never been part of it, it must sound so corny. <laughs> but it was like a real experience and the music was just part of it. You would never go to a club because X, Y, or C DJ were playing. The music was part of the overall thing that was happening. And for sure, sometimes uh, that would be hip hop and sometimes that would be dance music. Um, and sometimes it would be like a corny schlager sing-along. Um, and then it would go back to the beat. I, you know, I think in a sense people were more open, and I, I would meet more diverse people than we would later. Actually, when there were, you know, I think you see one kind of person almost now if you look around you in a club. You know, people talk about hipsters, and people talk about you know all kinds of cliques as being different, but they all wear the same uniform. Yeah, it's really interesting for you to. So that sounds like something that was. Netherlands, I mean, I, I remember the same time and I remember, you know, we, we if we wanted to go out on a Monday, we had to go to a gay club because all the straight clubs weren't open, yeah. right? So yeah. as having clubbers, we, we went anywhere there was a beat. And I, I know what you're saying, you know, we we saw and experienced and were introduced to all kinds of things and there was an openness, but it does also sound like this was something that was very big in the Netherlands at the time. Um, and it's interesting that you should say that because there is a homogenization, isn't there, to do with the Internet that's made everything global and every corner can be looked into instantly. So there maybe is a little bit less diversity or. Yeah, open I mean, I, I personally miss, but, you know, I, I always try to just be open to the fact that I might, may just be getting old. <laughs> um, you know, I I've actually feel that a lot of the recommendations that we're getting through the Spotify, you know, and, and, and similar systems are are so computerized, you know, that we, the same as what we're talking about, you know, being on Facebook and just seeing the kind of news that they suspect that you're going to like. Mm. Whereas for me to brighten my horizon, I should actually be confronted with certain things that I don't necessarily like and I wouldn't automatically opt into. But that's how you broaden your horizon. If I'm going to go, I only love, love red and you're just going to keep giving me red, how will I know if I like pink or white? Because <laughs> I'm just never being offered it. It's a, it's a good place to actually kind of start to round things up, Olga, because if someone does want red, it sounds like you're the person to help them to, <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the extreme. 
But um, I, I totally, totally get what you're saying. And I, I feel the same issues um, with this kind of uh, ever-decreasing circles. You know, as you say, algorithms will try and give you what they think you want, but you're never looking outside of them in that way. Yeah. Um, and uh, it sounds to me like if anyone's going to keep their, their, their eye on uh, anything that can kind of break out of that artist-wise and, uh, and creatively, it's going to be you and your companies and your... Uh, your next 10 years, Olga, and obviously you will be thinking past 10 years because you've just explained why it's important to do so. Well, uh, and, and to that, and I mean, I definitely look forward to uh, this project that we're cooking up together. Uh, I well, think... shall, we tell, shall we tell people about it? This isn't really a promotional podcast, no, but hey. I think it's a, it's a great example of, you know, us seeing an opportunity where, you know, you guys uh, at Digital DJ Tips have done such a phenomenal job uh, in creating this platform for education, um, at, which is a great fit for Luke. Um, so I, I don't even think it's, it, you know, I think as soon as people are going to hear it, it's just going to make absolute sense to have those two things come together. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, we have a fantastic creative DJing product uh, coming out with a collaboration between us here at Digital DJ Tips and Layback Luke. Layback Luke, you've already described why we're interested in him. He started off as a techno DJ. He changed his sound. He's a DJ's DJ. You go to Luke's house, he's got his shoes off, his decks are turned on. He just does it naturally like breathing. Uh, and that kind of... you. Well, I was going to say you can't teach that, but guess what? You can teach that. Yeah. You can tap into that. You can show people uh, that some of the some of the ways it works. And we're we're very excited about working with Luke. Uh, and as we've said to you, Olga, and to Luke, Luke is one of the he's he's in the top ten among our audience, but he's certainly the number one DJ who actually has got any interest in teaching this uh, among uh, those our audience absolutely adore. Yeah, so we we're, can't we're super super excited about this. Uh, cool. Yeah, well, we've got um, high expectations, Phil. <laughs> Yeah, well, don't worry. We'll, uh, we'll make sure we need them. It's what we're here for. Olga, thank you very much for your time today, for coming on Tales from the Dance Floor and giving us your viewpoint. Let's call it a day. Thank you very much. Thanks, and, uh, Phil. We'll, we'll talk again very soon. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.